And let's begin this hour with some startling business news. Canadian consumers filed the largest number of insolvencies in almost a decade at the end of 2019. And that is, as you can imagine, starting to, uh, well, stoke some concern about the impact of uh, just how in debt all of us are in this country. Let's welcome in our personal finance expert, Rubina Ahmed-Hawk, for more on this and several other uh, business and finance stories here this afternoon. She joins us on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Rubina, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. All right. First of all, uh, what is fueling this uh, number of insolvencies, the largest, again, we've seen in just about a decade? Well, you know, money has been, and we've talked about this so many times, been cheap for more than a decade. And people have been borrowing in many ways, in many, in many cases, beyond their means. Now, even though interest rates are still pretty much at rock bottom, we did see interest rates rise quite dramatically about two years ago, where basically the Bank of Canada made up for emergency cuts they made in 2015. So anyone that took on debt in, you know, 2016, 2017 time uh, may now be up for renewal on their mortgage, may now be facing higher interest rates than what they got three, four, five years ago. And a lot of those people are unable now to make those mortgage payments. And along the way, they might have borrowed money from their home equity line of credit. They might have taken other loans off because they're loans on because they're feeling really comfortable in the loans that they are in. And they think, okay, I can go out and borrow more because it's really easy for me to manage my mortgage. But when it comes up for renewal and all of a sudden you're not getting that same interest rate, uh, you're going to feel the pinch. All right, let's look at some of the numbers because insolvencies totaled just over 35,000 in the final three months of uh, last year. And that, uh, Rabina, is about 5,000 shy of the record, which is about 41,000, which we reached in the third quarter of 2009. And anytime we're talking finance and we hear the years 2008, 2009, uh, I think we immediately, immediately get like a little panicked and a little worried. Are we uh, looking at a bit of a financial reckoning coming, coming here? Well, there's two different things happening. In 2009, a lot of people were going broke because they actually lost a lot of money on the stock market. Their investments were down. They were selling, capitulating, basically getting out of the market, trying to go back into cash and having a lot less money to spend or feeling a lot less wealthy. And now what's happening like, is basically a lot of people are unable to afford the debt that they are in. Sometimes there's a situation where you might have been renting a place for a while. This has happened in Toronto for so many years. Uh, for, for, uh, we've been hearing the story rather in Toronto for so many years. Your landlord wants to move in or they want to sell the place and all of a sudden you're back out looking for a place and rents have gone up so considerably uh, since since you first got that place, which obviously can only the rent can only go up a certain amount every year, and now X amount more money out of your paycheck is going towards rent, and all your other debts get really difficult to pay. So all these things that are happening to people, whether you're a renter, whether you have a mortgage, whether you've taken on just unnecessary debt, um, it's making it hard. I mean, we hear survey after survey of people being a couple of hundred dollars away from being unable to pay their bills. So after many years, there is going to be an emergency situation that you will have to fork out some money for, and then that becomes a a question. Do I take money um, on my credit card? Do I take money from my line of credit? And all of that is debt that then you have to, uh, again, pay back. All right. As we're looking at near record level of uh, insolvencies, what would your advice be to people that are concerned about this or worried about uh, their own financial situation? Well, I think anyone whose mortgage is coming up for renewal, I would start crunching the numbers hard now. So, you know, you know, you have a good idea of how much mortgage you're going to have at renewal. You have a pretty good idea of what rates are out there right now. The fixed rates are at 
very low rates right now. It might be a good idea to fix yourself into for five years so you know exactly, at least when it comes to your mortgage, where your financial situation is. Uh, don't be tempted by those big lines of credit that the banks give you when you often sign up for a mortgage. I really am not a big fan of the fact that now you can't just go to a bank and get a mortgage. They tack on a home equity line of credit with it automatically. All these banks now have these hybrid products where as you're paying your mortgage down, you're, you're creating more and more room in your line of credit where you can go and then take money out and go on a trip, buy a car, do rene- renovate your home, really do whatever you want with it. Uh, those loans are a little bit more expensive than your mortgage. They're often prime plus. So prime plus one, prime plus one and a half, uh, prime plus half in some cases as well, but still more expensive normally than your mortgage. And those are the ones that start to creep up on you because you take a little bit out, a little bit out, a little bit out. You just make interest payments. If interest rates, um, if you renew at a higher rate or for some reason you've got to put money somewhere else, you can't service those loans anymore and you're in a, in a bad situation. So stay away from taking on extra debt and really be realistic about the situation you're in going forward especially if you've got a mortgage coming up for renewal. All right, since we're talking about mortgages, let's uh, flip the page and uh, talk about uh, housing prices because there's this headline in the Star that really caught our attention today, Rabina. And the headline reads, his parents bought their first home for $45,000 in their 20s. He bought his for 690000 in his 30s. Why first-time buyers are getting older at an alarming rate. And I just want to start with, with the money uh, aspect here, because that really is, I think, eye-popping. 45000 for your first home in your 20s, where your child has to wait till their 30s, and it's now nearly $700,000. I mean, that's an incredible difference. Yeah, it's an incredible difference, but I always tell people to put these numbers in perspective. So first of all, we don't know, I don't know if they give the, the time, like when what the year was that they bought this home for $45,000. I mean, my parents bought their house in Scarborough for $80,000 in 1978, and now homes in their neighborhood are going for about a million bucks. So, you know, 900 to 1.1, 1.2, which seems completely unreasonable if you think about the fact that, you know, this is in the suburbs of Toronto. It's not even that well connected to transit. Uh, but the reality is, is that one, again, money has been so cheap for so long that people are bidding more and more on homes. So what their parents borrowed that $45,000 for, it, it's more expensive than what this person is borrowing, whatever he borrowed for his $600,000 home in his 30s. The other thing is we have people constantly moving into the city. 50,000 plus people a year move into the GTA. They need places to stay. That drives prices up. That's just the reality of a booming city. And it's actually in some ways good news because it means that we constantly have an economy that's moving. We've got people that are working. We've got home prices that are stable. They're not going down. You know, unlike in Calgary where all of a sudden they've seen home prices fall by 20%. So they're their worry is is that oh my goodness I bought this home for five hundred thousand and now it's worth four hundred thousand and I still got X amount of mortgage on it I can't you know I can't really make ends meet so you know as much as I I sympathize with first time home buyers a lot of it is the reality of living in a big city it's the reality of knowing that that bungalow that your parents could afford when they were your age is not your reality it's, you have to be realistic about what you're going to buy a condo could be the first place that you buy when if you want to get into real estate and all Always remember that people push this idea that a home is an asset. A home is a liability. When you own a piece of property at any time, a $20,000 expense 
can come up. You can have um, a repair, a, a renovation, uh, and there's utilities, you know, ongoing costs to run that home, too. So put all those things in perspective uh, before you start saying, well, it's so expensive to buy now, and why was it so much cheaper for Okay, me? well, that's fair, but isn't real estate also a great vehicle to uh, to make money? I mean, there's plenty of people who have gotten very wealthy over time uh, with uh, real estate, and when we look at the uh, facts from BMO, they say that uh, the average first-time buyer in the GTA in 2014 was 27 years old. Just five years later, that's gone up five years, 32. So if you are theoretically getting into the game, into real estate later on in life, uh, are you forgoing some of those uh, you know, money-making opportunities, investment opportunities that uh, your parents and previous generations had much earlier? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that old saying, the best time to buy real estate is today or 20 years ago. You know, so really real estate is a long game. So if you're uh, someone who's thinking of buying a home anywhere, um, you should first make sure that you're going to stay in it for at least five years because the real estate and legal costs will eat up any profit that you make in that five or six years if you sell it too quickly. Um, Again, and also you can look at your piece of real estate as a money-making machine by renting half of it out. A lot of young people are making very smart decisions by buying duplexes, so living in half of it, renting the basement out, which is helping them with their mortgages, and all also, you know, creating, a, 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 you know, utilities are cheaper, taxes are cheaper because they're spread up over more people and you're collecting rent and it's helping you pay for helping, helping you pay those costs off. Um, and, and if you're going to get into the, if you're going to buy a piece of real estate, uh, re- really crunch the numbers of, can I afford this mortgage if interest rates were 2%, 3%, 4% higher? Because a lot of people are taking on eight, $900,000 mortgages so that they can get into that dream house, get into that dream location. But they don't realize that after five years, they're hardly going to have made a dent in that money. And now all of a sudden, if rates are higher, how will they afford the payment? So just go in with your eyes wide open. Here with our personal finance expert, Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. Rabina also wanted to talk to you this afternoon about this interesting new uh, research paper out of Western University in uh, London, Ontario. A uh, researcher there by the name of Liam Kennedy has authored a paper on Paw Patrol, the animated series that began back in uh, 2013 about a group of uh, dogs who were led by a 10-year-old boy named uh, Ryder. And he is claiming that uh, Paw Patrol actually encourages our kids to embrace capitalism. As a matter of fact, in an interview with the CBC, he said, uh, I'll start with the depiction of the state. Uh, Mayor Humdinger and Mayor Goodway, uh, kind of the representatives of the state or the government, they are portrayed negatively. He says the mayor is portrayed as unethical or uh, corrupt. And he goes on to say that uh, it's problematic, uh, Paw Patrol, that their creators are sending this message that uh, we can't depend on the state to provide various uh, services. Give us your take on uh, all of this when it comes to this children's series and capitalism. Are we looking a little too hard, a little too deep for something that's maybe not there? Well, I think this is what academics do, right? They take something and they try to dig deeper and find what the real message is. And I think it's interesting. I absolutely want to read his paper. My kids are obsessed with Paw Patrol. I'd love to hear what his take is on why he feels it's, it's, it's promoting capitalism. I mean, any show that has a hero would then fit into this this description because Spider-Man is the same thing. He's not paid by the government. People rely on him to come and save the day. Superman, same kind of idea. And so we've always had these type of characters um, in our children's lives where there's that hero character. And often there is an evil politician that they have to somehow get rid of or they have to put their thumb on because... 
you know, he's ruining the city or ruining the area. So these, I don't think that this is something that, I mean, these types of shows have always existed. Um, you know, there's been other criticisms about Paw Patrol, too, how they have a one woman of color who's seen kind of as this sort of, you know, not very intelligent and always needs help, and that they've got this kind of overweight other mayor who's seen as this kind of bumbling idiot, and all those things. You know, what messages are they sending our kids that, you know, we shouldn't respect people who are in positions of power? Uh, but then, you know, you look at the adults that are actually in positions of power and, you know, we, we get all this rhetoric about how much we hate the politicians running the country, running the world, running the province. And so, you know, we need to be careful as well if we're not perpetuating that around the dinner table, complaining about the premier, complaining about the prime minister, saying things about the president south of the border. So if we're saying those things and then our kids are watching this and sort of confirming that this is the way it is, and you got to pull up your bootstraps and do everything yourself, then maybe it is promoting capitalism. I mean, I'm not a capitalist. Uh, I definitely believe that, you know, I'm a big believer in social services and that we have to help people equally. And some of us are just born in positions where we, we are expected, we are um, encouraged to do better because the people around us are helping us and others are not. Um, so that doesn't mean that one person is better than the, the rest. But, uh, you know, I, I think this is an interesting take, um, a little bit of a stretch. But definitely- yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about uh, parents and uh, parenting, because he does go on to say that uh, I think as time goes on, children might be less likely to critique the capitalist system that causes things like environmental uh, harm and reproduces inequality. And, uh, you know, I understand that at that age, they're very impressionable uh, young minds and they can be molded, but I think they can be just as equally molded, if not more so, hopefully by uh, involved and active uh, parents rather than just a television show. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look back, we had G.I. Joe when I was growing up, you know, so like this sort of raw, raw, especially for, you know, this sort of attitude that we have about the states being like, you know, these the very military first and very much like go in and save the day and now we're seeing that replicated all across the world, you know, and, and we hear that in our news. And so it's really important that if we see something on TV that bothers us, if we see something on TV, like I'm, a, you know, I don't often talk about it, but I'm a woman of color. And if I see something that, you know, I really think misrepresents who I am, I'm going to make a point of saying it to my daughter because I don't want her to think that's reality. I want her to criticize and be, you know, ask questions about things. So if you're upset about the message that Paw Patrol is sending, you can be as strict. They're your children. You can stop your... I remember when I was a kid, my parents didn't let me watch Three's Company because of the number of different messages <laughs> that show sent. And now I look back and I think, man, you guys are uptight. Like, that's nothing <laughs> I remember begging just to stay up to see Three's Company. Never mind the messages. I just wanted to stay up till 9 p.m. It was too crazy for my parents. But, um, so I think that, you know, if you feel that something in Paw Patrol, and I think that people should, without just reading the headline and saying, oh, people are just, you know, I, recently there was a big conversation about how schools are now trying to get rid of things like Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and Father's Day because of all of the cost that's involved with it. And also because some kids don't have a mom or a dad. Some kids don't have traditional families. And Valentine's Day is very much about, you know, a boy telling a girl that he likes her and they don't want to promote that. They want to promote a more inclusive environment. And I think that's lovely. That's progress. And so do the same with the shows that your kids are watching. If you don't like something, talk about it. But definitely don't confirm the messages if you think that they're wrong in there by having those conversations as adults without with your kids in the room. You know, the one thing I do love about this job is the fact I never know what I'm going to face every day I get up. And I had no idea when I got up this morning, I would be sitting here talking to our personal finance, finance expert, Rubina Ahmed-Hawk, about the hidden messages in Paw Patrol. 
<laughs> and how the it's got a money message in there too. So yeah. <laughs> Rabina, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye bye.